Before we start, I wanted to let you know that this episode deals with online child exploitation. Please take care while listening. A listener production. As parents and carers, we would do anything to protect our kids. But we do shy away from talking about one of the biggest dangers. I think we find it so hard to face this issue because ultimately we feel that we're very limited in what we can do. Most people feel powerless in this situation. I'm here to dispel some of that. Today on Feed, Play, Love, we're talking about the real dangers our children face online and what we can do to keep them safe. Feed, Play, Love with Siobhan Hunt. There are some topics that, as parents, we find so difficult to face, we often turn away from them. The sexual exploitation of children is one of them. It's an awful so great, it's hard to comprehend. But evil thrives in the shadows and on the dark web where child abuse material is shared among groups of predators. Now, a new listener podcast, The Children in the Pictures, is shedding light on the issue. The podcast follows an Australian task force as they take on one of the most notorious online child exploitation networks in the world and asks how we can better protect our children, both online and off. Akim Dev is the creator and host of the podcast. Hi, Akim. How are you? I'm good, thank you. What made you want to tell this story? Where did it all begin? Oh, look, I'll give you the short version. (laughs) (laughs) Go to the podcast for the long. yeah. I think everyone knows that this crime exists, but what I didn't realize was the scale. So when I found out, I was researching another documentary actually about, um, prisoners, people who keep on going, um, in and out of prison, like high risk reoffenders. And I met a child abuser in the course of those interviews. What he told me was number one, with the material, you will only be able to visualize something in your head that you can handle. And also he said, you have no idea about the extent. He described it like the White Walkers in Game of Thrones spreading at such a rapid rate on the dark web. After I finished the interview, I was like, White Walkers, dark web, (laughs) what the dark web? So I got curious and I, I did a bit of research on it. And lo and behold, there is such a thing called the dark web. The other thing that I kept on hearing, um, or reading, I should say, when I was researching was I kept on seeing this name Argos, Task Force Argos, and the work that they were doing online to bring down these networks. And then I found out that they were based in Brisbane. So I was like, look, let's roll the dice and give them a call. I got put onto the media lady at (laughs) Queensland police, told her the same story I told you with the reference to Game of Thrones. And she was like, you won't believe it. The head of Task Force Argos is named John, like Jon Snow, <laughs> and he's a massive Game of Thrones fan. I'm going to put you through. Oh, wow. So there I, was, there I am. I literally cold called Task Force Argos and I was speaking to John and he was very like, mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. You know, I, I basically was trying to show my bona fides. So I mentioned this site and he was like, yep, yep, okay, no problems. Look, I'm really busy at the moment, but I'll give you a call back in a couple of months. So look, I thought that was the big fob off. Then a couple of months later, that site went down and it appeared in the papers, et cetera, et cetera. It was actually taken over and run by Argos. I was in the presence of a covert police operation. 
a global covert police operation. So John was basically like, yeah, I can talk now. <laughs> wow. And he opened up his black book of contacts. He runs a conference every year that's a global law enforcement conference in the Gold Coast. Um, and he invited me to it. And basically I met everyone from Interpol, Homeland Security, FBI. Let's talk about John for a moment because <laughs> he is a, a big character in this series that you have been working on, but he ended up in the task force somewhat reluctantly. Let's hear a little bit of his story from the series. John's office is full of memorabilia from a long and storied career fighting against these crimes against children. There's hats and badges from police departments from all over the world, citations and awards. John's been at Argos for most of his career, but he's never forgotten what it felt like to get started investigating some of the worst crimes imaginable. I vividly remember the phone call, actually, where they told me I was being assigned to the child abuse unit. I was pretty shocked, actually. I'd never had any dealings with uh, the exploitation or abuse of kids. I had a very young daughter at that stage, and I remember the reaction of the person who told me that, going, oh, you'll be right, everybody goes there, it'll be fine. Now, that's a really, that's a polar opposite view to what we would do today if somebody expressed any concerns with a young child. We wouldn't do that, but... Hey, this is the 80s. Reflecting on that story, obviously something has hooked him in, like something has hooked you in. Most of us listening to this would acknowledge that the work that both you and John are doing is, uh, is really important. But what kind of toll does it take on him, on you, to be consistently confronted by something most of us don't even want to think about? John and I have talked about this at, in various ways at various stages of our, I hate that word journey, but mm. <laughs> you know, relationship, I guess. I mean, yeah. we're, we're friends, you know, what I've found is that, well, uh, this, this I can say about police, police, you're just not in the, the business of good news. You know, a lot of the times you're telling people that their, their children have been killed in car accidents or a loved one's been murdered or crimes have been committed. So that builds up that there's a residual buildup of that. But then when you see this material, it's often the straw that breaks the camel's back. So what I didn't realize, I thought I I'm, you know, a hundred percent put my hand up clearly clinically diagnosed with PTSD. But what I didn't realize is that this was the straw that broke the camel's back in my documentary career. I've been exposed to war zones. I was, on the ground in India when the tsunami happened, so surrounded by a lot of death and destruction. This material was the one that got me. This material was the one that broke me. And I had, um, the first, the first way that it manifested with me is that I started having oral audio hallucinations. Wow. That I couldn't hear my daughter crying. I had a, a I mean, my child, my youngest one's seven now, but when she was a baby, I just, that noise. Um, I blocked out and that was because I was exposed to some material that is widely regarded as some of the worst material that law enforcement have ever come across. It involves horrendous torture to an 18 month old baby and my child was the same age. So yeah, I started, you know, first I thought, oh my God, I'm turning the TV up too loud when I'm watching the footy <laughs> and, uh, and my ex-wife, 
at the time <laughs> was probably thinking that, you know, I was just wanting to listen to the footy, but I honestly couldn't hear my own daughter. Wow. Then the next thing that happened was, um, well, the doctors say that it was a seizure. Um, but it was happening. It was like almost like a out of body experience. I could see myself having the seizure. And this was when you saw a particular footage, is that correct? Yeah, or? Well, it was about, a, it was about probably a year and a half to two years afterwards. Um, then after the seizure, about six to eight months, I went totally white. My beard went totally white. Um, which is often a, a case of when you go through shock. I mean, look, I'm in my fifties, so maybe I was <laughs> <laughs> headed down that direction anyway, but this certainly accelerated it. You know, I went from, um, you know, quite a suave salt and pepper <laughs> to, you know, Indian Santa Claus <laughs> really rapidly. Um, yeah. So, and, and the, and the reason why I talk about it and the reason why I'm more than happy to share it with you and your audience now is not for any sympathy or poor me's is to give you an example of exactly what this material is. It is not kids frolicking on the beach in underwear or posing provocatively or anything like this. And we're talking about every single age of the spectrum from zero to 17. It is so hard to hear that. Um, Particularly, I think, for a program like ours, because I know that people who listen to this program listen because they want to be the best parents they can. And so getting, hearing it is hard, un understanding it seems impossible. And I'm not sure that that's necessarily our aim. We don't necessarily want to understand how it happens. I think most people just want it to stop. What's difficult to believe is the role that the internet has played. What the internet has done is that it's turned the common cold into a COVID. That's the analogy I use. It's turned something that has been around and happens for a while, but it's turned it into an epidemic, a pandemic. It's not hyperbole to say that, you know, it's a humanitarian disaster in the making because we know that the effects that this crime type has on children and children grow up to be adults. And that's when we really can see that the, the damage that it causes. So yes, there's a part of me that, you know, it's warm and fuzzy and I want to protect kids. And, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm that way inclined as a dad, you know, I'm a little bit, um, I'm a little bit silverback gorilla in that kind of respect when it comes to, when it comes to my kids and everyone else's kids really. But, um, when you listen to the adults, the survivors of this, you know that something has to be done. And really, we're not focusing on every type of child abuse in this, in this series. We're talking about online aspects of it. And this is the area where we can make the most amount of change. The internet is the wild west. It's so unregulated and things that happen on the internet, well, there's no way that they would happen in the real world. So why do we let them? Um, and, th and that's where every parent has a role to play. But I also believe that every human, every member of society has a role to play if we believe that, you know, a fundamental part of society is protecting the members in it. Let's talk about the internet when it comes to parenting, because what you say about the Wild West, I think many parents now, let's say Gen Xs down to millennials who are just 
raising young kids now, we've all had varying degrees of exposure to the internet, but often what we'll find is that our children are going to be dealing with a technology we haven't seen and we can't understand. So when I say we haven't seen, I'm not saying, Mm. obviously we know about TikTok, doesn't mean that we've used it. I think one of the things that happens is that parents hear that the internet is dangerous, but then it's so overwhelming. It's like, how can I possibly protect my child when they're online? But it seems like there are some really basic things you can do. (laughs) Could you talk us through some of the simple steps in terms of what we can do with our own kids? Not necessarily how we can stop what's going on online, but how we can protect our own kids. All right, let's, let's, let's talk about the internet per se. Now, John says it quite clearly. If you're building a playground, it needs to be safe. You've got to go through so many permits and council regulations to make sure that it's a safe environment for your kids. That does not happen on the internet. We have allowed it to be unregulated for several reasons. Um, you know, the, the privacy lobby have played a, um, you know, a massive part in that. But I think what we, what we try and do is we try and let our society or the court, court of public opinion play the, play the biggest part in it but we never get to trial <laughs> in the court of public opinion. Then there's the way that we consume or use technology. In the blink of an eye, we went from having phones that made calls to send SMSs to basically having computers in our pockets. And now that analogy time, and that's like giving the keys to a Ferrari to a five-year-old. You can't sit there and scratch your head when the car comes back dinged. Accidents are going to happen. My perspective and my advice, if I'd have any, is that your children are going to be interacting with these devices pretty much from birth. You'll give your kid an iPad. But also, <laughs> what's the point of not giving your child an iPad? They are digital citizens. They're citizens of the internet. And I believe that they need a, a good head start. But what we need to do is we need to be as, as active a parent with our kids' online lives as we are in their real lives. And I think we really need a good, long, hard look at ourselves. You know, like, I've, I've, hey, I've been guilty of it myself when that email comes through and I've got to look at it while I'm at my kids' swimming lessons. And you've got to put that thing away and, you know, you, you, you've got- So you, role modeling. Yeah, role modeling and um, parenting. remember that one like parenting like we've we've i've talked to parents before and said oh you know like if you could do this on your phone you could do that on your phone there's so many tips and tricks and a good place to start is the e-safety commission and also the australian center for counter child exploitation go to their websites there's a bunch of information more than i'll be able to able to say we need to teach our kids internet ethics and one way that i i kind of do it is i kind of I'm teaching my little one, my seven-year-old, in the same way that I teach my, I would, I would put those lessons in about childhood obesity, you know, <laughs> or, or hygiene. It's mm. internet hygiene, you know, like use it for a couple of minutes, clear your mind afterwards, don't have it on while you're eating dinner. The, the, the demographic age for where the abuse can happen online has drastically fallen. So where we'd be more scared of tweens and teenagers, 
maybe coming across um, strangers online or um, even being exposed to abusive material or hardcore pornography. No, we're talking about four-year-olds, five-year-olds. Maybe if you yeah. could explain, I suppose, going back a step, mm. a parent of a four-year-old might say, well, how on earth are they going to be sure. groomed or, sure. I mean, if we're talking about age groups, what yeah. are, what are the specific dangers for children that are, let's say okay. under 10? Right. I've seen a child live stream, basically a strip show. And that boy was five and it was on YouTube. Wow. Now, where did he learn that behavior? If he's watched any kind of music video in the last five years, you could kind of, uh, that's not the thing that boggled me. How does that kid learn how to live stream? Yeah. How does he become so technologically savvy? We kind of put in all the bells and whistles, but we don't think about, oh, could that, you know, what could, what could possibly go wrong? You know, we've got to start asking ourselves those questions. And I think there's this, um, there's this, this huge schism between kids online lives and their real lives and what their parents know about it, that when something does go wrong, children don't know what to do. It's like, can I go and tell my mum about this, that I've been approached online? Number one, I've got to tell her that I've been online and talking to people. Well, this is the technology that I use, you know? So a lot of the times kids are leading a double life. They've got this online identity and their real life identity. I've been told before that you need to sort of be online with your child when they're younger anyway, and say, I want to know what you're doing online. So you're sort of there and seeing what it is that they do. Another one, someone said to me is never let your child have their computer in their room and be able to shut the door. I mean, are these things still relevant or? A hundred percent. Look, I believe that it's going to come a time where like people of my generation used to say, um, can you believe the dad used to drive from here to Canberra? We'd never wear seatbelts. <laughs> <laughs> have the windows up and he'd be smoking a pipe. <laughs> it's, it'll be like that. And I'm hopefully it's my kid's generation That'll say, God, could you, can you believe that our parents used to let us take our phones into our bedrooms? Like, what did they think was going to happen? So it's about rules and boundaries, right? Of because course it is. I keep making jokes. Every time my husband says to my daughter, yeah, well, you can get a phone when you're going to high school and you've got to travel on public transport. So maybe you can have a phone when you're 12. And I went, oh, sorry, sorry, child. Your, your father's got it wrong. He meant 21. So you're getting a phone when you're 21. Now, obviously denying children the devices is not going to work. Is it about saying they're going to use it anyway, but here we've got some hard and firm rules that we just can't if not you, use? If you, if you accept that they're, they're going to be digital citizens, <laughs> that's like saying, I know my kid, I know my kid's going to read books, but oh my God, I, I, you know, you can't read books till you're 21. <laughs> Because you might get an F word in there. Kim, this was my plan. You might get an F word in there or something like that. Man, I'm the opposite. I would start teaching them as babies and be aware of what they're doing. I would teach them how to interact with the phone. I would teach them about semiotics, which is the language of symbols, and how to navigate on devices. So they understand that I am 
the person passing on that knowledge. Call me old fashioned or call me Indian, but <laughs> parents got a parent, you know, you got to, I'm just as guilty as any other parent. I've let an iPad be a babysitter. I've let Disney channel look after my kids for the whole afternoon while I've got work to do. Sure. Done all, done all it all, but, um, I'm not worried about my kid being abducted in a park when I'm there. I'm not. I'm worried about my kid being in her bedroom and someone talking to her on the phone. That's, that's my biggest fear. Um, and if you look at the statistics, that's what's happening now. One in three children around the age of 12 will be approached by somebody that they don't know online. One in three. So when it comes to that, your daughter and that fear that you have, what have you said to her about that scenario that you are hoping will prevent that from happening? When my 22-year-old was 14, it, it, was, it was like the, the height of the selfie era and it was when I just learned that people can hack phones and get the selfie accounts. So I sat her down as a parent and said, look, I know this is awkward, but there's something I need to show you. And I showed her a site where this guy had collated I think 15,000 different children. And she was like, whoa, <laughs> that's pretty heavy. And I was like, is there stuff that you need to get off your phone? And she was like, no, but I've got some friends I need to talk to. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think that was, that was pretty much a, a wake up call with the little one. It's I've gotten, I've gotten, you know, her, her mom especially is, is said, look, you know, you're only allowed a certain amount of time you know, device time or screen time, um, per day, um, which is kind of, you know, like, like I said, it's, um, sort of like using the same sort of methods that you would to give your kid a healthy diet. You can't have 10 bowls of ice cream. You can't. Knowing what apps your kids are using, you know, like if they want to install a game, what's that game about? Has it got functionality where it can connect? Has it got instant messaging functionality? Has it got group connectivity. So there's all those things that you need to kind of look at. Once again, there's a bunch of resources and this is why I'm so glad we're having this conversation because there's so much resources out there. Uh, eSafety Commission has got literally manuals on how to guide your kids through it. Better than what I could say. My job is just to tell you where those manuals are. And also the Australian Centre for Counter Child Exploitation because a lot of parents say the same thing. There's no handbook. There's no guidebook. You know, where are the rules? I don't know what to do. Where's the instruction booklet? I didn't pick it up on the way out. You know, there is, there, the, the, this material does exist. We read books on how to breastfeed. We read books on how to teach our kids how to walk or read or whatever, you know? So it's, it, it's got to be the same. You've got to incorporate that into our parental syllabus. Mm, I've got some homework I need to do. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Kim, thank you so much for your time today. You're very welcome. That's Akim Dev. He's the host of the Children in the Pictures podcast, and you can hear the Children in the Pictures on the Listener app or wherever you like to listen. We'll pop a link to the series in the episode notes. You'll also find links to where you can find more information on how to protect your children online in the notes of this episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Feed, Play, Love, a listener original podcast. If there's something you'd like to learn more about, email me at feedplaylove at sca.com.au. I'd love to hear from you. 
For more great kids and parenting podcasts, check out the Listener app. And don't forget to follow us. I'm Siobhan Hunt. See you next time.